Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett. After living with borderline personality disorder, completely unaware for the first 35 years of my life, and after suffering a major life crisis that woke me up to the disorder, I spent the following seven years ridding myself of the disorder authentically and permanently. I now share the insights I learned along the way so that others might do the same for themselves and, you know, hopefully not have it take them seven years. You know, one thing I learned along the way is that you don't have to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder specifically to be dealing with the same fundamental underlying problems. So all are invited to listen to this program and improve their lives. I hope you are having a wonderful week. I got a new microphone here, and uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm waiting for a, a boom handle or a boom, boom arm and some other things to really get this set up well. So in the meantime, I'm going to record this show and hope that uh, the sound is okay. I've been joking with folks that uh, after last week's episode, I went into a coma. And it has taken me a whole week to recover from that episode. The letter that I read from my ex-wife is always a bit excruciating for me to get through. There are others that uh, I might share as time goes on, but that one is particularly heavy for me. Well, let's catch up a bit. I haven't been sharing much of myself with you lately. We've just been jumping right into the week's topic, and that's good, but it lacks a bit of the personable, lighthearted intimacy that you and I are used to sharing with each other. So how about a story? Are you in the mood for a story? Well, ladies, grab a stick or something to put between your teeth to bite down on because I imagine that's going to be your reaction to this story. And fellers, you're probably going to think this is pretty cool. This is the story of when I ingested a parasite in the woods. (laughs) Well, growing up, I lived in the Appalachian woods. I was surrounded by hundreds of acres of wilderness. My brother and I and my cousins, we had the run of all this wilderness and we'd get so far from home that never in a million years would we go all the way back home when we got thirsty. Never. That would take forever. It would take forever to hike all the way back home through the deep woods, get a drink, 
and then for us to get back to wherever the others were down in the woods. It was very common for us to drink from every stream around. Of course, just because of the way we grew up, we, we could distinguish between what water was likely safe to drink from what water to avoid. I don't remember how we learned this, maybe from osmosis, but, uh, you know, we, that was the, the culture, I reckon. We grew up around that, so it's something we kind of picked up. But, you know, my dad might have uh, explained it to me at some point. I just don't remember. But we would start playing in the woods, and we would gradually get deeper and deeper and deeper into the woods. So by midday, you know, we're probably a couple miles back in the woods. And uh, you get thirsty back here. There's just no way you're bushwhacking all the way back home back home so you know we would uh, do our time in the woods and go back to the house at the end of the day like at dark but uh, it wasn't like one of these back and forth type deals all day long but anyway uh, there were streams in the woods creeks that sort of thing and we had somehow learned how to safely drink water in the woods if you'll remember, and I've talked about this in the past, in our home, we already drank water that we pulled out of a hole in the ground. All the water we drank was from a natural freshwater spring over the hill that still exists to this day. It's just a hole in the ground, and I'm not talking about a well. I'm talking about a spring. So uh, I had to go down over the hill and scoop that water into a bucket every evening and carry it up to the house for me and my family to have water for the night and the following day. Incidentally, as, uh, as a sort of side detail related to this, as kids, we used to dig up sweet anise root in the woods. This is a plant that grows wild, and it's what things like black licorice and root beer come from. I think it's technically just called anise, but I was taught, you know, the vernacular, I guess, the redneck vernacular that I was taught was to call it sweet anise. So uh, that's what I still call it today. And we used to dig this up. We'd go out into the woods and find this plant and uh, dig it up. And we would chew on that root. And it tastes just like, you know, it's, it tastes like black licorice. Well... To keep the uh, the spring, you know, the natural spring where we got our, our water, to keep that level, there was a pipe that allowed for runoff. So there was a pipe that went into the, the spring that come out, and uh, all the runoff would go down that pipe, drain down into the holler, down where these two hills come down together and met. And I got into the habit for a while there, of digging up a bunch of sweet anise root and then I would place a large container under the end of that runoff pipe and I would stuff it full of sweet anise and then I would come back later and I would have a container full of black licorice taste in water if you like black licorice that probably sounds like heaven to you if you don't like black licorice you're probably cringing about now but man, I'd do that in the winter time, and I mean, I just remember everything being covered in snow, and me going down and drinking that black licorice 
water. It was just crystal clear, uh, but it had the flavor of black licorice to it. Anyway, back to the story of the parasite. My point for telling all this background is to paint the picture that I have been drinking water in nature for a long time. I imagine I have a pretty strong stomach. In fact, I, when I've talked to Mexican friends and uh, people who have traveled to Mexico, you know, they say that you got to be careful with the water. I'm not sure I would have to be that careful. I could probably, my stomach would probably handle it pretty good. I'm not sure I want to test that theory out and crap my, myself into oblivion or anything, but, you know, it's a suspicion that I have. And for those of you wondering, running water in nature is naturally safe to drink. Maybe you didn't know that. In order for water in nature to not be safe to drink, something has to contaminate it. Yeah, so water in the woods by itself is drinkable. In order for it to not be drinkable, something has to contaminate it. Now that contamination can be bird poop, it can be a chipmunk dying in the creek, it can be a, a bear peeing into it, or you know, it could be the water sitting stagnant and collecting a bunch of uh, nasty stuff. Or it could be a nuclear power plant nearby. But you get the idea. Lots of things can contaminate water, but water by itself is not the problem. Well, fast forward 100 years later, and I'm an adult. And I'm on a week-long wilderness backpacking trip with my friend Jeff in Pennsylvania in the Black Machannon Wilderness Area. Now, typically on these backpacking trips, I take no water filters of any kind. Instead, I have been used to simply drawing on my experience from my childhood. And I either find water that I'm sure is safe, or I boil water that is questionable. Well, the day that I ingested the parasite was actually on the very last day of our time in the woods on this particular trip which just happened to also be the very day that my daughter, Eloise, was being born. Yes, I missed the birth. And that's a whole long story in itself for another time. But the short version is that my daughter came three weeks early, and the doctor had assured me repeatedly that I could go on this trip without risking missing her birth. So I went on this wilderness excursion confident that I still would not be meeting my daughter for another three weeks. And of course, in the wilderness, there's no phone service. And so when I come out of the woods and got back to civilization, <laughs> you can imagine the messages, the 10 million messages that begin to appear on my phone. It was just one after the, the other. Ding, ding, ding for like 20 minutes. At any rate... Jeff and I were on the last day of this trip, and we were hiking through a thunderstorm, trying to cover the last 10 miles or so back to the truck. Do you remember what my kryptonite is? That's right, it's lightning. I'm really not a fan of it, because nothing moves faster than light. Not even your thoughts travel to your brain faster than light and what this means is that if you get struck by lightning 
You could literally be dead before you even know you're dead. Isn't that crazy? So anytime I'm out in the wilderness and there's lightning, I'm always tense and on the edge and looking for any opportunities to not die, basically. Well, after eight miles or so, I was thirsty on this day that we were coming out of the woods on the last, the last day of this trip. And I stopped to get my water bottle out, and I drained the last few drops out of it. But I was still dying of thirst. And here in front of us was a stream. Now, let me say this. I was not comfortable with the water in that stream. I don't remember what it was about the stream specifically that made me uncomfortable, but there were indications that it was probably not the best choice for drinking. I think it was probably its proximity to the trail, and I was thinking that all sorts of animals probably come to the same location here to, to drink out of it, and they're probably pooping and peeing and doing whatever all around this thing. But whatever the case was, I had reservations. But the, the thunder was rumbling. I knew we were only a few miles from our vehicle at most. I was feeling lazy. Uh, I was eager to just keep moving. But primarily because I said, you know, we're, we're just two miles out, and I want this to be quick. So... I just want to get my mug out, scoop up some water, get a drink, and let's just keep moving. So I said, this time, I'm going to go against my intuition, and I'm going to drink this water straight out of this part of the stream that I'm a little, uh, that's a little questionable. And so I did. Well, a month passes, and I come down with this fever. It's, it's July. July, I even know the year, July 2015. It's July 2015, middle of summer, and I developed this high fever out of the blue. Now, typically, when I come down with the flu, it starts this way, with body weakness and high fever, which then is followed by a sore throat and congestion. So when this fever hit me, I thought, oh, oh boy, here we go. I'm coming down with the flu. So I was waiting for the inevitable congestion and sore throat to manifest. But after a couple of days, there was nothing. All I had was this ongoing high fever. And that was strange to me. So I started analyzing what could possibly be going on. And what I realized is that my body had to be fighting off something. But for the life of me, I could not figure out what it, what it could possibly be. Now, at this same time, I need to tell you that there was a, a rash. It, it, it appeared like a rash on my belly. But it was like in a single kind of uh, roaming line across my belly. And I had been scratching at it for a couple of days before the fever hit. Yeah, this rash, but in the shape of a, a single squiggly line across the section of my belly. And I'd been scratching at it, but not thinking anything about it, really. You know, I thought it was just something that would come and go. 
And even after this fever started, I did not connect the two things as being in any way related. Well, the fever continued, and as I continued trying to, to deduce what could be the cause of it, the memory of me drinking that water, which I had suspicions about, out in the woods on that last day, all of a sudden that jumped into my head. And as soon as I remember drinking that water, and I did the math, and then I looked down at this rash on my belly again, it all came together. And I realized that I was hosting a parasite. <laughs> Ew, right? It was under the skin on my belly. And as the days passed, it was becoming more and more visible in its shape. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking about the cringing going on over there. So what do you think I did? Well, I know what you think I should have done, but I did not go to the doctor. Instead, I said to myself, well, heck, my body's trying to kill this thing with fever, and uh, that's exactly what I'm going to let it do. I'd been taking Tylenol to bring my fever down, but now I stopped doing that, and I just let my fever soar. For several days, I was walking around freezing to death in the middle of summer, freezing to death, stumbling around, wrapped in blankets with this high fever and sweating to death. But do you know what? It worked. When my fever began to break on its own after about a week, without me having taken anything to bring it down, I knew that my system had finally burned that alien creature out of me. And sure enough, that line under the skin, that squiggly line under the skin of my belly, gradually faded away to nothing after a few days, and it, it went away entirely. And actually, once my fever was gone, the thing on my belly just disappeared real quick, uh, which told me that uh, my my body had... Uh, the fever had done its trick. It had, it had eliminated this thing. So there you have it. My one and only parasite experience that I know of. The moral of the story? Lightning can kill you real quick, so be careful out there, folks. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. There are probably better morals to be taken from that story. I'll leave it to you to draw them out. I haven't mentioned thelastsymptom.com yet, so let me do that now. Thelastsymptom.com is where you can support my overall body of work with a donation if you've got the hankering. I want to thank those of you, uh, in a serious way, who have supported me these past couple of weeks uh, in this way. You can view this episode of The Last Symptom Podcast as a reflection of my gratitude to you personally. Besides the many free resources I offer, thelastsymptom.com also has a couple of paid services, one-on-one -on -one conversations with me on the phone or through Zoom video conferencing, but also there is now a new, thorough, intensive, pre-recorded course that I have made available. It's called The Last Symptom Fundamentals Two-Week Course. If you want an experience that is informatively far superior to anything like DBT, I highly recommend you check it out. 
just go to thelastsymptom.com and uh, go into the paid services section of the site. Now, uh, for today's subjects, I thought we would discuss several things, kind of a hodgepodge of uh, subjects, which are kind of question and answer, but things that I've responded to or topics that have come up that uh, I've written about here recently, and I just thought I'd share them with you. The first one deals with John Wayne masculinity. I was talking to a person who uh, was describing her father, and uh, I could see a lot of parallels between her father and mine, and uh, that caused me to comment on John Wayne masculinity. Let's talk about that. You know, my dad also reflected a lot of the old John Wayne styles of thinking, and I'd like to tell you ahead of time, just right here up front, that I'm a big John Wayne fan. I love John Wayne. There may be two or three movies of his that I don't own, but I own the library. And to this day, I still admire many of the forms of masculinity that John Wayne represents. So I don't want it to be misunderstood that I am criticizing John Wayne or this style of masculinity in general. In the movie Hondo, John Wayne takes a woman's kid. It's kind of like his girlfriend. And he takes this woman's kid and outright tosses him into a creek when he finds out the boy can't swim. The idea is that the boy will learn to swim on the spot from his life depending on it. And this will make him tough. This scene in the movie, I love the movie by the way, but this particular scene turns my stomach now. I don't have much respect for that particular scene. Now here's why. It's like rape. Yeah, that may sound strong, but but that's the way I view it. It's like rape. Uh, And I don't know what else to compare it to. It's a violation of another individual's self. You know, no person has any right to violate another person's self. When unhealthy people don't perceive uh, uh, people as individuals, that's how they behave. Like, I can just, I can do whatever I want to you. I can grab you any way I want to grab you. I can touch you. I can push you. I can uh, order you around. I can do all these sorts of things because you are not a person. You see, I'm a person. You are not a person. You're like an inanimate object in my way. And I'm going to take that inanimate object and make it do what I want it to do. You know, it's like I've got a broom sitting over here in the corner. Uh, It's an inanimate object, so I can just, I grab it, I do whatever I want with it, and uh, nobody can tell me otherwise. And it's unhealthy people that use a variation of this same perspective when they deal with other people and I don't have much tolerance for that anymore so it's like rape it's the same type of attitude that allows for rape you're here for me you're you're just an object it's a violation of another individual's self so I don't like the thinking that says I have a right to physically lay my hands on somebody and do whatever I want to them regardless of their feelings, this is repugnant to me. 
and it's especially repugnant when we're talking about children. Now, there are times, you know, I'm a father, and there are times I've had to correct my daughter, and there have been exceptional moments when this has even included measured corporal punishment, but this has never been something that I have done all willy-nilly with no regard for her feelings or with a careless attitude of entitlement. Before I've had to make these corrections with her, and also after these corrections, I make sure to show great concern for her feelings, and especially her sense of dignity, by getting down on her level, and when I say that, I mean I get down on eye level with her, so she's not looking up at me, but rather we're down on the same level. She feels like we're talking face to face. And I make sure to show great concern for her feelings, and especially her sense of dignity. And I take the time to make sure that I explain to her the reasons why I am making the decision I'm making. And there have been occasions where, after hearing her input, I've even changed my mind based on what she felt or thought. Now here's my perspective on masculinity. Hardcore masculinity is not the problem. And I think that people who focus on it and complain about it um, are missing the point. If hardcore masculinity is not the problem, what is the problem? The problem is this black and white thinking that says hardcore masculinity and respecting other people as individuals can't coexist. You know what? It can coexist, and my life is proof of it. You see, I can be a man, and I can also love and value people as people at the same time, and reflect that attitude in my dealings with people. So the two things are not mutually exclusive. You know, uh, believing, for example, that to be a man, you've got to treat people like like their property. Uh, that is as black and white thinking as the person who says masculinity is the problem. Uh, both are erroneous absolute perspectives. Uh, both of them are missing the more subtle point. So hardcore masculinity, uh, I'm purposely not using the, uh, the term that you know feminists might use because I don't agree with it. But uh, hardcore masculinity is not the... Okay, let me not beat around the bush here. I don't believe in such a thing as toxic masculinity. All right. There's hardcore masculinity, and there's people who dislike it because of their past experiences with it. Uh, but like I say, they're missing the more subtle point. It, and their view is a very black, uh, black and white, erroneous view. So, hardcore masculinity is not the problem. The problem is this black and white thinking. And remember, any time you get black and white thinking that completely uh, overlooks subtlety or is based on opinion, then, then you got a problem there. But the black and white thinking is the problem that says that hardcore masculinity and respecting other people as individuals can't coexist. 
It can coexist. My life is proof of it. The reality is that heavy or hardcore masculinity can coexist. The unhealthy dads that many of us had, they were not reflective of true masculinity. That's the bottom line. They were reflective of insufficiency, compensation, and great insecurity, I should say. So while our dads are trying to emulate the heroes of their imaginations, the reality of just how much they are missing the mark as real men completely eludes them. If they had any idea of just how much they are failing at being truly masculine and just how obvious this is to people who are healthy, they probably would not be able to face the world because it's just downright embarrassing. It's like that person walking around talking to everybody at a party who has a piece of spinach stuck in his teeth that he's not aware of. It's that type of embarrassing. Insufficiency. Compensation. And tremendous insecurity. Yeah, it totally misses all the subtlety of what makes a man a man. That's, that's the most embarrassing thing. They get the obvious stuff. They emulate the obvious stuff, but they miss the subtle stuff. And they think that all the importance is in the obvious stuff. And it ain't. The importance is in the subtle stuff. Being a real man is about treating people like people. With dignity. And also, being a real man is about being secure with yourself. Being a real man is not about compensating. You see? So it's it's really embarrassing. Now, um, here's the thing I need to say about that also. Is that you might be that man. So then we need to have a discussion about shame. Should you feel bad about yourself, if you do a self-examination, you realize that you're one of these people. No. No, you shouldn't. You should never feel bad about yourself, because that's shame. And shame's never constructive. So, that's not the point of any of this. The point of this is to, first of all, just have kind of a frank discussion about masculinity. What it really is, um, and what it's not. It's also a discussion about viewing people as people, not as things. Right? Uh, in the past, I've told you that the whole, the whole basis for emotional disorder is when we have an inaccurate perception about feelings, self, and life. And I've told you that the, the feelings part don't just apply to our feelings, but by extension, how we view feelings in general. That is the very nature of feelings. Everybody's feelings. Self isn't just how we view ourselves but by extension it's how we view people right so this falls into that category an erroneous unhealthy perception 
about the nature of self, that is to say, of what it means to be an individual. Do we view other people as individuals, or do we view them as things? And then finally, not to shame anybody who might um, do a a self-examination and find out that they're uh, fitting this pattern, but rather so that they can make adjustments and correct those things and get to experience genuine masculinity. True masculinity. I can tell you what it. De- I can tell you what it uh, depends on. I just mentioned it a second ago. Depends on security with oneself. It does not involve compensation for uh, you know overdoing it, so to speak. Uh, it also involves an appreciation for subtle things that create the foundation of real masculinity. Not the superficial things that we just emulate from movies or from uh, our grandpa, right? Your grandpa wasn't a tough, wonderful man because uh, he, he beat up his wife and he viewed his children as possessions. Your grandpa was a wonderful man because he cared about their feelings. He went out of his way to, to demonstrate and reflect how much appreciation he had for them as individuals, as people, and so on and so forth and so on. You know, if we kept talking about this, it would go on for 180 days. But we're going to move on to the next subject. Uh, Somebody says, I need more insight and clarity on the topic of friendships. Should one abstain from pursuing friendships until they have fully recovered? I think this is born from my advice for people who are not in relationships to stay out of relationships until they've advanced in their recovery. And the reason why I give that advice is because once you get into a relationship, you're no longer you. You are a we. And what's the problem with that? Can you see any problem with that? Well, what is the nature of authentic recovery from emotional disorder? It is an individual accomplishment. Where does one's focus have to be to authentically recover from an emotional disorder on himself or herself? Can your focus be truly, primarily, and exclusively on you yourself if you're a we? Probably not. Let's say that you do all the work, you get uh, emotionally healthy yourself. You completely rid yourself of an emotional disorder. Can can you have a healthy life when your partner has not done the same work? When your partner's ate up with emotional unhealth and and now you're healthy, your partner's totally not because he or she has not done the work that you've done. Are you going to have a healthy relationship? No. No, you can't because you're only 50% of the relationship. How about, uh, let's say you do all the work to get healthy. Now, is your unhealthy partner going to appeal to you like he did when you were unhealthy? Now that you're not unhealthy? No, it's not going to be a nice match. Uh, 
So that's why I give the advice that if uh, that if you're single, that you avoid committed relationships. My advice has never been to not socialize, uh, but to avoid committed relationships because you just got no business looking for a relationship while you're unhealthy. You want to get healthy. And then when you go looking for the relationship that you want, you'll be able to identify good candidates. You'll know what to avoid. You'll make good decisions. You'll have the best opportunity to find happiness. And then to experience harmony in that relationship afterwards. So it's not because I'm mean or uh, unreasonable that I that I offer that advice. How about if you split up with your husband? So you're on the verge of divorce or, or wife. I don't mean to single out one sex over the other. But let's say that uh, you've split up with your husband and uh, you've been separated now for two years. Should you get back together before you've advanced in your recovery? No, because again, where's your focus at? Why your, your attention has no business being focused on a relationship, right? On a we. When recovery, the nature of recovery, authentic recovery, involves focus on me. Not on we, but on me. Because remember, it's an individual accomplishment. You know, once you get a little bit better, you know, if you've got 20 years uh, being married with a person and you've got that, that huge investment, well, then maybe you would want to get back together with him, even though maybe he's not uh, healthy and hasn't done the same work you have. Because of that 20-year investment, kids are involved, those, those sorts of things. That would be the thing that would might make... Uh, getting back together worth that uh, I do not give the advice that married people just break up automatically I think they should try to work that out especially if they got you know a whole life under their belts that's a big investment but for those who are in a single situation that's my that has always been my recommendation that you just stay single and work on yourself nobody ever died from focusing on themselves and being single for a year or two. And when I say being single, I don't mean not socializing, not going on a date, uh, things like that. I just mean not getting into a committed relationship. So anyway, back to the question. The question is uh, about friendships. Does this apply to friendships too? Well, I hope you can see by now, uh, after my long-winded explanation there, that not really, it doesn't apply to friendships because we're talking about two different things here, but I will say that the healthy standard for all relationships and indeed all things, so you know, forget about relationships, just anything that uh, you're going to have in your life, the healthy standard for for those types of decisions is this. Anything you allow to be a regular aspect of your life must contribute more to your emotional health, peace, and contentment than it does to your discontentment and emotional unhealth. Now notice, I have not said that the standard is that whatever you allow into your life must only 
contribute to your emotional health, peace, and contentment. Rather, I said that whatever you let in must more greatly contribute to your emotional health, peace, and uh, contentment. Now, see, that's quite a, quite a difference. You see, if the standard was that anything we let in must only contribute to health, peace, and contentment, absolutely nobody would hold up to this standard. Not even we would qualify to be allowed into other people's lives. It's not reasonable. So only contributing to positive things isn't possible. And uh, because it's not possible, it's not a healthy standard and not reasonable. But if you think of it like a teeter-totter or a seesaw, uh, we always call them teeter-totters, but maybe you call them seesaws. I never heard that term, by the way, until I moved to Philadelphia. Seesaw. But if you think of it like a teeter-totter or a seesaw, it illustrates the point well. The teeter-totter or the seesaw simply has to be tilting more in favor of emotional health. If so, then that influence, you know, that person, that thing, uh, that friend, that television show, that app on your phone, have you thought about these things? Is Twitter robbing you? Is Twitter contributing more to your discontentment than it is to your contentment with life? If so, it's got to go. That's the standard. It doesn't have to be a person. It can be anything. Is that television show robbing you of peace and, and contentment and happiness more than it's contributing to it? Well, if so, it's got to go. Is that quote-unquote friend robbing you more of contentment than he or she is contributing to peace, harmony, and contentment, and emotional health. If so, he or she's got to go. So, on the other hand, if there's something that's tilting the teeter-totter more on the side of happiness, harmony, emotional health, contentment, even a little bit. It just has to tilt just a little bit on the, the side in favor of emotional health. If it's doing that, then it's something that uh, you can healthfully allow in. And that applies to friends too. The next topic, how do I deal with persistent feelings of anger at past injustice? Now, I know many of you might be dealing with some persistent feelings and having, uh, well, I know that many of you might be dealing with some persistent negative feelings or having trouble coming to acceptance and moving on from the nagging feelings of anger and upset and just, you know, some of the injustice, just some of the injustice that you have suffered in your own lives. Maybe from your childhood. And that's understandable. You know how I know? Because I dealt with that too. 
I didn't accept all my own life's injustices and losses overnight. In fact, uh, it took me years, years to get over those things. You know, I looked at my losses. I looked at the, the loss of my wife, my friends, and all these things. And then I could see the relationship tied directly back to my father's treatment of me. And I knew that he was responsible in an indirect way for my divorce, for the loss of my friends, for all the agony and angst in my life. All for all not we're not talking about for a day or a week, but for thirty years. And my father was not suffering any of the consequences of it. I was suffering the con- I was suffering all of the consequences. So here's the man who who set this all in motion, and I'm the one suffering all the pain for it. Do you know how hard it was for me to process that great ongoing injustice? It did not happen over lot overnight. I did not accept all my own life's injustices and losses overnight. So I know it can be difficult. But here's my advice to you. Keep assuming control over your feelings rather than allowing your feelings to assume control over you. Do you know that a dog will naturally see a vacuum in leadership and will step in to assume that leadership? I know this because I've got two dogs (laughs) right now. One's a pup. He's only seven months old. And I watched him and, and the other dog interacting. And I pay particular attention to how they interact with me. Of course, I've seen this throughout my life, but uh, I'm just giving you a, a current day example of me observing this. But let's say that again. A dog will naturally see a vacuum in leadership and will say, that vacuum needs to be filled and I'm going to fill it. So you, you hear people talking about their dogs being alpha and all this baloney. Well, their dog is only alpha. And this goes for everybody who owns dogs. Anybody who owns a dog, your dog is only being alpha if you, as an owner, don't know what the hell you're doing. Because if you're an insightful dog owner, there's only, the only alphas in the family will be people, not dogs. Right? I hear this all the time. Bugs the snot out of me. Oh, you see, there's my three dogs, and there's Johnny. He's the alpha. In any human family where dogs exist, the only alphas should be people. So if you have a dog who's the alpha... He has seen a vacuum and he's filled it. Where, who has created the vacuum? It's the owners 
not being alpha. So they're not they're not being good leaders. And the dog has perceived a vacuum there and says, well, these people aren't going to do it clearly, so I'm going to. And then you get a dog pushing ahead of you through the door, growling at other dogs, growling at people, biting, snapping. Uh, you see people saying, oh, boy, my dog, look, just loves uh, me so much. That's why he's growling and barking at uh, my guests. No, your dog is growling and barking at guests because you're not taking leadership and keeping that dog in line. So your dog has assumed, the, the dog is viewing itself as being responsible for you rather than the other way around. But the point of all this is that as long as there is strong, determined leadership calm, assertive leadership. Dogs will submit to that. The only reason dogs assume leadership is when there is a vacuum. In other words, when the dog is in a family full of human pussies. <laughs> and in case anybody takes offense at that for sexist connotations, I think I should tell you that the word pussy comes from the word pusillanimous, which means cowardly. I bet you didn't know that. Yeah, it, the word pussy it does not derive from what you think it derives from. It actually originates with the word pusillanimous, which means cowardly. Anyway, getting off track here. Our feelings are like dogs. That's the point. Our feelings are like dogs. Our feelings, just like dogs, will move in to fill a vacuum when direction and control is lacking. Isn't that crazy? But you don't have to allow that. So say it after me. I do not have to let my feelings be in control. If they're in control, it's only because I am not taking control. But I can assume control, and I will. My feelings can't control me if I don't want them to. Isn't that interesting? The parallel there between dogs and our feelings. Again, dogs, when they view a vacuum, when they perceive a vacuum in leadership or control, they will step in and assume control. That's why you get uh, dogs that are uh, poorly behaved because their owners are terrible leaders. And our feelings do that too. Our feelings will move in to fill a vacuum when direction and control is needed. But you don't have to allow that. So I want to encourage you, you to be in control all the time, not your feelings. Just think of your feelings like Fido and uh, say, Fido, you're not the one who leads us into the house. Step back, step back. I lead us into the house. You walk in, allow Fido to follow you, not the other way around. And finally, the last topic for today, 
This message says, I request you to make a podcast on self-acceptance, body image, and borderline personality disorder. How to accept reality. How body image, like being fat or skinny, is related to borderline personality disorder. Well, here we go. Authentic recovery involves moving away from the worldview that external things are significant and that they matter. Have you thought of that yet? I mean, have you picked up on that as we've been talking over the past few years? Authentic recovery involves moving away from the worldview that external that external things are significant and matter. As long as you're unhealthy, that is your worldview. Your worldview is that external things are significant and they do matter. When you become healthy, your worldview changes and you realize external things are not significant and they do not matter. External things are literally the things that matter the very least in this world. Being healthy is a state of recognizing and truly knowing that inner things, inner things, are what is most important. And I don't mean that in a goofy, superficial way, like you see in a meme or that you hear in a clever saying. You know, it's like, if I see a sexy woman, just a smoking hot woman, and I start getting all slobbery and happy, and you say, Yes, Brian, but is she beautiful on the inside? I mean, come on. While I'm in, th- while I'm in the throes of sexual lust, is <laughs> not the right time to be asking me something like that. It's just ridiculous. What does my sexual lust have to do with whether she uh, likes feeding the poor in Guatemala? Yes, It matters if she's beautiful on the inside, but it's not relevant as far as my sexual desire goes, is it? So here's what inner things being the only thing that matters means in a serious way. You know, not in this sort of superficial, like, (laughs) ideological way. What inner things being the most important thing means is that my lust for the woman in the bikini is not what determines her worth as a person. You see, if that woman in the bikini can only feel a sense of worth when she has other people lusting after her, like me, this is not healthy. It's not even real. It's an utterly false premise that is all in her head, but that will control everything she does and thinks and feels. So my lust, my sexual lust for this woman is not a bad thing. But from her point of view, if she depends on people lusting after her in order to feel like she has value, then that is bad. If she can escape this mental prison and make a shift, to recognizing and truly understanding that nothing outside of herself can define her or determine her worth, then she is free. 
Now, think about how this entirely changes her entire approach to life. Think about it. If she has escaped the mental prison that nothing outside of her can define her or determine her worth, think about how this frees her. If nothing external is able to define you or determine your worth, what power do other people's opinions have over you? (laughs) They don't have any power at all. Other people's opinions only have power over you when you think that those opinions somehow have authority to define you and your worth. They don't have. Only inner things, now now pay attention to this, only inner things about you can define who you are as an individual. And what about your worth? Well, your worth is inherent. So it's not dependent on anything at all. In other words, your worth doesn't only exist when other people view you as having worth. No, because your worth is inherent. It's there whether or not anybody views you as having it. As far as what defines us as individuals, it's not anything external. Think about it. A woman walks up to me in the street and she spits in my face and she calls me a pig. So am I a pig? Has this experience, or is it she who determines if I'm a pig or not? Boy, that would be some serious authority, wouldn't it? If each of us, individually, had the authority to walk around and determine the reality of who and what other people are. Folks, it doesn't work that way. No, the woman who spits in my face and calls me a pig is expressing her opinion, and she's free to do that. But opinions are relative. Do you understand that? Opinions are relative. They aren't definitive of anything except for what? What is the only thing opinions are definitive or reflective of? Well, they can only, in concrete reality, be reflective of the person who holds that opinion. You see that? Opinions can only, in concrete reality, be reflective of the person holding that opinion. Can they be reflective of the object of that opinion? No, they can't, and they aren't. Because, you know what happens? This woman spits in my face and calls me a pig. And then I walk one block further, and I turn the corner, and there's another woman who has the entirely opposite opinion of me. As people... Our opinions and what we think of others holds no true determining power over anything 
at all. Only I, as an individual, and my own opinions, behaviors, thoughts, feelings, etc., can be reflective of any realities involving me. Only my own. But when we're unhealthy, we don't seem to understand this. If we walk into a room and we believe that people are looking at us and thinking negative things about us, then as far as our reality is concerned, we must be something negative. You see, in this this unhealthy circumstance, this unhealthy perspective, it is they, not us, who are deciding what and who we are and our value and our relevance. This is an indescribably twisted and erroneous view of life and a very common one, I should also add, unfortunately. The reality is that only my own thoughts feelings and behaviors have any power whatsoever to reflect realities about myself. Nobody else's thoughts, feelings, behaviors can reflect anything about me. It only, it's only a reflection on them, not on me. Other people can think, feel, and have opinions of any sort that they want, but it has no bearing on me and my reality. None of their thoughts, feelings, or opinions are even possible of being a reflection on me. What is the only thing their thoughts, feelings, and opinions can reflect? They can only reflect who they are as people individually. But it, it can't reflect me. Do you see how this subtle but powerful shift in the way you perceive life liberates you? Now what happens when I walk into a room full of people who are all thinking negative things about me? Well, first of all, I don't even wonder. It, that's true. I don't even wonder if they're thinking negative things about me. You know why? Because I don't care. Why would I care? To care would mean that on some level I believe that what they think determines things about me, determines realities about me. But because I know that I'm the only person, I am the only person who can determine realities about me, I don't even wonder if they're thinking negative things because I don't care. Now, let's say that somebody runs up to me and whispers in my ear, Hey, Brian, everybody here has been talking about what a big dummy you are. Do I now feel crushing disappointment in myself? No, I don't. And again, why would I? Now, this is not to say I won't feel disappointment. But what will be the focus of my, of my disappointment? The focus of my disappointment will not be in myself, but rather it will be in these people 
choosing to reflect so poorly on themselves. That's disappointing. I'll be extremely disappointed in them. I'll feel hurt that people can be so foolish. But trust me, what I'm not doing is feeling bad about myself, as if other people are who determine whether or not I'm a big dummy. <laughs> no. Yeah. They only get to define themselves as big dummies or not, individually, through their own thoughts, behaviors, opinions, and actions. But what they think can certainly not be the thing that determines this about me. And you know, it doesn't even matter if 10,000 people all share the same negative opinion about me, which is not unusual, by the way. If you're a famous person, and I'm not saying that I'm a famous person, I'm just asking you to imagine any famous person. A million people might adore the famous person. And uh, another million people might despise the famous person. Do you know what those two million opinions equal out to? Zero. None of them are relevant whatsoever as far as what defines that famous person in reality. And none of those opinions reflect the reality of who and what that famous person just is. Only the famous person, himself or herself, can reflect these realities about himself or herself, not anything outside of him or her. Not two million opinions of other people, not the car they're driving, not the clothes they're wearing, not their current weight, not their hairstyle, none of these things. How about feelings? Who is the only person in the world who has to value my feelings in order for them to have value. Just me. Do my thoughts or feelings need validation from a college professor or from a beautiful woman or from somebody rich and accomplished in order for my thoughts or feelings to first matter? No. We live in a world that day after day is working very hard to convince you of such lies, but they are lies. They're not reality. The reality is that my thoughts and feelings only have to matter to me. And if I truly understand this and I walk around living my life with this accurate understanding of the reality then I'm free as a bird. You see, I'm not carrying that ridiculous, enslaved burden of defining myself by what other people think. I'm instead defining my own self. And if I'm doing it in a way that I'm content with, then it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. As far as body image goes, this is, again tied into the totally false concept that people's opinions are able to determine whether we as individuals have value or not and how much value we have. Do you uh, 
You ever see these paintings of these elegant, rich, fat women from hundreds of years ago? You know what I'm talking about. You know, you walk into the Philadelphia Museum of Art, you see all these fat, rich women in the paintings. Have you heard that back in those days, chunky women were considered the most beautiful women? So let me ask you, what's the reality? Are chunky women the most beautiful or are skinny women the most beautiful? It depends on who you're asking, doesn't it? So how on earth can anybody's opinion be what determines the reality? It can't be, and it's not. If you remember a couple of weeks ago on this show when we were talking about things of a relative or a subjective nature, I, I flatly stated that nothing that is opinion can be black or white. Another way to say this is that it is impossible that people's opinions, any opinion, that is anything that can fall under the category of being an opinion, it is impossible that an opinion can be reflective of the reality of anything. Me, myself, and five million other people may concretely argue that carrots are a better vegetable than broccoli. Me and five million other people opining it does not make it so. There is no such thing as a best vegetable of all because the entire discussion involves matters of opinion. Do you understand that? There is no such thing as a best vegetable of all. Well, that's what your weight and body type is like. First of all, nothing external like your weight has any bearing whatsoever on your worth as a person. Other people's opinions of your weight or body type are utterly subjective, meaning that their opinions have no bearing on anything real. Because what one person doesn't like, another will like. And think about it. They're brainwashed products of the fashions and fads and thinking around them in this relatively small window of time anyway. Fads, fashion, preferences, these things are not real. Remember, just 30 years ago, Just 30 years ago, now, if you know, if you're 20, that seems like forever ago. If you're 45, like I am, uh, it seems like the blink of an eye. But, you know, just 30 years, we don't even have to go 30 years ago, but that's the one that I've written down here for my example. Just 30 years ago, women were wearing their hair all poofy and huge in ways that would call Cause most of us to burst out in laughter today, and yet back then, it made us men ravenous and horny. <laughs> that was just 30 short years ago. Go back 15 years ago, same thing. Look at the early 2000s, and women were still wearing those uh, 
shoulder pads and stuff. Whatever society says is beautiful today is so temporary as to be laughable. It's, it doesn't determine anything. It doesn't reflect any reality at all. It's all opinion. And finally, nobody else's opinions can be reflective of realities about you. Only your opinions can be reflective of realities about you. What do I mean? Well, for example, maybe one reality that is being reflected in your opinions is that you live with an unhealthy false perception about other people's opinions being able to determine things they can't and don't determine at all. Something to think about. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the show for this week. I hope you're all having a wonderful week wherever you're at and whatever you're doing. Coming up on the weekend, do something nice for yourself. Uh, I think I'm going to... Uh, well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. You you put me on the spot. You asked me too quick. Uh, let's see. What can I do nice for myself this weekend? Oh, I'm sure it'll be something. Probably a movie. Time with the old guitar. And uh, maybe some poetry. Oh, hey. Uh, I recently subscribed to Apple Music. So if you folks are on Apple Music, let me see if I can pull up who I am on there. And uh, I invite you to uh, to friend me on Apple Music. Got to find myself here. Doggone. Oh, okay. So Apple Music, if you want to friend me and see my playlist and all that sort of stuff, um, you can find me at The Broken Map. At the broken map I might be crazy for offering this but I figure what can it hurt maybe I'll get uh, exposed to some really good music on there so anyway that's me on uh, Apple Music Brian Barnett at the broken map and I look forward to you following me and and me seeing your music preferences and stuff like that too I'm trying to set aside more time for myself to listen to music so Speaking of nice things I'm going to do for myself this weekend, that'll probably be one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next week, same place, same time. I appreciate you listening to me today.